the San Francisco Experience podcast. Brought to you by Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley, California perspective for a global audience. Featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 21, Episode 6. Pakistan. Origins, Identity, and Future. In conversation with Professor Pervez Hoodboy. Our guest is Professor Pervez Hoodboy, a nuclear physicist and activist concerned with the promotion of freedom of speech, secularism, scientific temper, and education in Pakistan. He studied at MIT, where he was awarded three undergraduate degrees and a PhD in nuclear physics. Subsequently, he was a professor at Islamabad University in Pakistan for 50 years. And during that tenure, he held visiting professorships at MIT, Carnegie Mellon University, and University of Maryland. He is a sponsor of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist and a member of the Monitoring Panel on Terrorism of the World Federation of Scientists. In 2011, he was included in the list of 100 most influential thinkers by the Foreign Policy magazine, and in 2013, he was made a member of the UN Security General's Advisory Board on Disarmament. He joins us in San Francisco. Good morning, Pervez, and welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. Pervez, the United States and Pakistan have had close relations since partition in 1947. Yet many Americans know little about your country. What inspired you to write this book? It was for my own edification. It was for the edification of my uh, compatriots that I wrote the book, not for the United States. But I'm happy that it will be read in the U.S. After all, this is a huge country which has had a huge impact upon Pakistan. But really, my basic audience is that of the subcontinent. It actually is co-published in India as well. So I'm hoping to reach an Indian audience as much as a Pakistani audience. But of course, Europe, the United States, books go everywhere. Well, your book is a sweeping overview of Pakistan's history and, of course, the role of Islam and Muslims, both in pre-partition India and, of course, in Pakistan post-partition. Could we begin with a, a brief overview of the history, starting with 712 AD, a critical year in the history of India and Islam in India? Good. Let's take that as our starting point. This is the year of the Muslim invasion of, of India by um, Muhammad bin Qasim, who comes just about uh, something like 60 years after the death of Prophet Muhammad. And this is the first time that the Muslims set foot upon India. And this is why in Pakistani history books, he is said to be the first Pakistani. Now, it's an absurd statement, I believe, because he did not stay on. He was um, a conqueror who came, who defeated the Hindu Raja Dahir at that point, And then he went back. And since he was sent as a general by the ruler of that time, uh, and the ruler got a little jealous of him, he had him put to death. So that wasn't, in my mind, how Pakistan actually began. Mm -hmm. 
Let's look at this even before the Muslims came. This is, let's say, 2,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. And this is where I begin my book, because there is now a myth. There are myths which are being popularized by the Indian and the Pakistani states that we are pre-existing civilizations, very, very old civilizations, and we are distinct from each other. So this is what is called the two-nation theory, and much of my book deals with that. Mm -hmm. How this notion came about that there are two and only two nations that inhabit the Indian subcontinent, one Muslim and one Hindu, mm -hmm. and that, of course, as articulated by the founder of Pakistan, that uh, these two are mutually incompatible, cannot ever live together in peace, and therefore the subcontinent must be divided. Mm -hmm. Now, to understand why this is wrong, one needs to go back far into history, and here I must rely upon the researches of uh, Indian of historians of ancient India who tell us that actually people who lived during those times did not identify themselves with a particular religion. Mm -hmm. In fact, Hinduism is not a religion in the sense that Jews or Christians or Muslims understand a religion to be. Mm -hmm. Hinduism is very amorphous, yeah, there are multiple gods, but the gods that you worship and the gods that somebody else worships can be entirely different gods. Mm -hmm. Customs are different. And so if you were to go back 2,000 years ago and ask somebody living in India, hey, are you a Hindu? He'd say, what's that? Mm -hmm. In fact, it's, it's very interesting that until the Muslims came, and now I'm not talking of 712 AD, the date that you mentioned, but 200 years after that, 250 years after that, where there's a very famous Muslim traveler who comes, learns the language of India, the sacred language, Sanskrit. Mm -hmm. He masters it, spends 13 years doing that, and gets a fantastic view of India of that time. Interestingly, he refers to the Arab Muslims as Muslims, to the Turk Muslims as Muslims, mm -hmm. to the Afghan Muslims as Muslims, but those Muslims who had converted from Hinduism into Islam, he calls them Hindus. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's really funny, isn't uh, it? It is. So now, let's ask, where did the word Hindu come from. Mm -hmm. It comes from the Arabic word Al-Hind, which in turn comes from Al-Sindh. Sindh is a river, is Sindhu River. Mm -hmm. And my point here is to emphasize the fact that there was no great ancient Hindu civilization in which each member of that civilization could identify with a broader community. Mm -hmm. That came much, much later. And today, of course, uh, Hindus can identify with each other, just like Pakistani Muslims can 
identify with each other. But that's in, it's not true that these were ancient civilizations which pre-existed long before partition. Mm-hmm. I see. Let's move on to the British Raj. When the British came to, to then what was unpartitioned India, and that was in the 1700s, was it not? Give us a kind of an overview of the influence of the, the British during their colonial period in the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, and up until 1947. The influence that they had on India and on the Indian people. The differences between broadly Muslims and others were were always there, but Hinduism and Islam were, over the centuries, mixed into each other. There was a lot of syncretism, and in fact, um, Hindus would worship at Muslim shrines, and Muslims would worship at Hindu temples. Mm-hmm. The lines were very blurry at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so e- even at the time of the Muslims, Muslim empire that ruled over most of India, the Mughal Empire, mm-hmm. so that's uh, 1500s till 1857, mm-hmm. the Mughals were, were Muslim, but they were deeply integrated into Hinduism as well. So no... Mughal emperor, except the very first one, was a pure Muslim genealogy. The subsequent ones, they married Hindu women. It went on and on. And so there was a lot of intermarriage. Now, there was within the Muslims a reaction against this. And in my book, I call them the Muslim purifiers who felt that hey, we've gone too far in accommodating the Hindus. We need to cleanse our religion. Mm -hmm. But they didn't have much of an effect until the British came. When the British came, they uh, slowly established themselves. And then they started making demands that, hey, we want to rule over this place. So first we want to know who is Hindu and who is Muslim. Mm -hmm. And so the very first census in India's history is carried out in 1870. At that time, they demand of you, hey, are you Muslim or are you Hindu? And that then creates cleavages. Mm -hmm. It may have been for purposes of administration only, but, you know, big data like we know today, I mean, you know, Google gathers all the data, Mm -hmm. but then it uses that for specific purposes. So that was, I think, important. But what was even more important was that the British were few in number, maybe something like 50,000 at the very peak. Mm-hmm. But they were ruling over 300 million Indians. Mm-hmm. And so they needed to have local people in administration, which meant that they had to learn English mm-hmm. and modern subjects. But here, the responses of the two communities, the responses of the Hindus and the Muslims were entirely different. The Hindus accommodated to modern learning, to English, to learning English much more easily. Mm-hmm. The Muslims were slow at that because they felt, hey, we are a great civilization. We've got the most perfect book, which is the word of God itself, mm-hmm. the Quran. And so that meant that the Hindus would become more educated, more able to get into industry, into business. Mm-hmm. And this created the differential 
which increased the difference between the two communities. And so syncretism started dying out. Mm -hmm. And so there was a separation then of Hindu from Muslim, but still it was by no means absolute. Mm -hmm. It's only when politics got into the picture, the differences started being exploited. Tell us about those politics, because I guess we're talking about the late 19th century, early 20th century, when the political parties and cleavages start to take place in Indian society. Tell us about those cleavages. At the end of the 19th century, you had a large mass of Indians being ruled by not very many Englishmen. Mm -hmm. And there, the first demands for independence started to be heard. Then comes the First World War, 1914 to 1918, and at that time, that demand becomes louder. But then it's only in the Second World War when Britain is not a defeated power, but it's a very weakened power, and Mm -hmm. it's become absolutely clear that, yeah, the British will have to leave. They cannot indefinitely remain in control of India. And that's the time when the political forces on both sides of the Hindu-Muslim divide start to get really active. Mm -hmm. And at this point, you have um, what I call in my book, the three founder heroes of Pakistan. Mm -hmm. Their points of view are then multiplied, they are amplified, so as to magnify the differences and divisions between Hindus and Muslims. Mm -hmm. Most important of them, of course, is Mr. Jinnah, also known as the great leader or Aide Azam. But, you know, he had a lot of difficulty in separating Hindus from Muslims. And it's um, an amazing fact that personally he was a very liberal, secular man who Mm -hmm. barely knew anything about Islam. Mm -hmm. And yet... uh, He became the founder of Pakistan. Partition wasn't inevitable. Give us a sense of the the negotiations that went on between the Hindu and Muslim sides as the British were making their plans to exit. What were the options? Was there an option for one unified India rather than a partition into India and Pakistan? Was that a realistic option on the table? And if so, why did it fail? Let's go to 1937. Okay, so that's 10 years before partition actually happened. Mm -hmm. The leaders of the Muslim League were very put off by the fact that uh, they had lost the elections, getting only 5% of the Muslim vote. That meant that they were going to get politically irrelevant. Now, they were defeated by the Indian Congress. The Congress was largely Hindu, but it had good smattering of Muslims in it as well. And um, 1937 was really when Mr. Jinnah, who is regarded as the founder of Pakistan and was the president of the Muslim League, he he set about a completely different strategy, which was to marry religion and politics and make uh, separation, the separation of Hindu from Muslim as his key platform. Mm -hmm. 
And thereafter, it was a case of rising popularity of the Muslim League. And then comes the end of the Second World War. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes absolutely clear that the British have to leave soon. Mm -hmm. Soon is not easily defined. It could be a year, two years, five years or ten years. Mm -hmm. But they have to go. At this time, various options are on the table. There could be a unified India to which the Muslims would not agree. There could be Muslim majority states which are states within Muslim majority areas within India which get a degree of autonomy that there is a confederation instead of a federation. All those options were out there. Mm -hmm. And this is where the British badly messed up. Mm -hmm. They um, were anxious to get out of there. Mountbatten had orders to wind up as fast as possible. And so disregarding the consequences that would follow, and those consequences were, were terrible, he uh, hastily, he and uh, the British, I should say, uh, hastily pulled out of India in 1947. This caused a bloodbath that simply cannot be erased from people's memories now. A million people, mm -hmm. or maybe a million and a half, were slaughtered. Mm. There was mass suffering on both sides. 14 million people crossed now the new borders that had been drawn up, and these borders were drawn up in a horrible way. Mm -hmm. The state of Punjab is where much of this bloodletting happened. Mm -hmm. It was split into East and West Punjab. East is with India today. West is with Pakistan today. Mm -hmm. And uh, oh, it was those were the most dreadful times of, among the most dreadful times of the 20th century. But it didn't have to happen. Or if it had to happen, it could have happened in a much gentler way, in a much more reasonable, logical way, but um, it didn't. So 1947, the participation of India into Pakistan, and Pakistan at that point consisted of a West Wing, which is the Pakistan that we know today, but also an East Wing, which, was, which has become Bangladesh. It was part of Pakistan until 1970, 1971, Bangladesh. And then the rest of India then became what we know as India today. That is the two-nation theory that you talk about in your book. That's correct. And it was, in retrospect, a foolish idea to have Pakistan in two parts, mm -hmm. separated by 1,000 miles of India. And those would be hostile territory, obviously, because uh, dividing up any country is bound to leave bad feelings. So the idea was that, according to the two-nation theory, that Hindus and Muslims can never live together in peace, but Muslims can always live together knowing that the other is a Muslim and that this is natural, obvious, whatever. Well, it turned out to be nothing like that. In 1971, so that's uh, just 25 years later or so, 
What you see is the breakup of Pakistan. There's a civil war. The East Pakistanis, the Bengalis, who are now Bangladeshis, felt that they had been badly exploited by West Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And indeed, they were absolutely right. So I remember that in school, we had Bengali boys. You know, by um, physical stature, they are shorter, Mm -hmm. darker. And so this brings forth racism. Mm -hmm. And so being a Sindhi myself from West Pakistan, we made fun of them. Mm -hmm. And I'm so ashamed to say that. I was a racist when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. But uh, and and I had to to learn why it was wrong. Mm -hmm. We also never accepted them as uh, proper Muslims. Uh, because the image of the Muslim was that of the Arab, of uh, being fair-skinned, yes. tall, mm-hmm. and and speaking some Arabic-like language, which indeed Urdu is. And so this was an unnatural union. It was another disaster in 1971 when East Pakistan broke away and became... Bangladesh. By the way, in my book, I uh, quote from John Baez, Bangladesh, Bangladesh, yes. That was such a such a powerful song. Yes, I remember that. But you see, that here is the tragedy that when one forms states on the basis of a religion, when a religion, any religion, becomes the raison d'etre for a state, then um, it naturally is exclusivist. It does not accept others as being equals to you. Mm -hmm. In the book, you talk about five big questions. And those five big questions essentially deal with the, the first question that you raise, was partition worth the price for the Muslims. So that's the first big question that you have. Can you discuss that? Yeah. Look, it was a terrible, terrible time. There were trains that would go from Pakistan to India and from India to Pakistan. They'd be waylaid and everybody on board hacked to death. And so You'd have a train pulling into a station with um, only corpses. The stories from that time are such that they leave people in tears even after 75 years. A million people dead after all means enormous human suffering. Okay, so in my book, I don't describe all that suffering because I know it's there. Yes. We know it's there. But then the question is, who were the beneficiaries of partition and who were the losers Mm -hmm. of partition. Mm -hmm. And so I do in my book a calculus of that. Now, of course, one can never encapsulate the total sum of human happiness as uh, one must do if one is philosophically so aligned as a utilitarian. But what I then ask is the question that If partition had not happened, Mm -hmm. would Hindus and Muslims have been able to live together in peace? And I don't know the answer to that. 
I suspect, I suspect that they would have had uh, problems with each other. After all, all communities, all different communities that are in contact with the other in the same space do have problems. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, in the United States, you have different peoples, very different. You have Italians and Spanish and um, people, and of course, blacks and now Indians and everybody. But over time, they've learned to accommodate each other. And so could that have happened? Perhaps it could have. So I try to make a balance sheet of this. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, what does the balance sheet tell us? Ah, that's what I leave (laughs) for the reader to figure out. And tell us, from 1947 to today, 75 years that Pakistan has been in, in existence, what is the unifying ideology of Pakistan, if there is such a thing? Because you refer to that as one of the big questions, one of the five big questions. Yes. So that chapter, if I recall, is does Pakistan have an ideology? Yes. And what is it? Mm-hmm. Now, I have to tell you that there is an official ideology of Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And um, if you are in violation of that, then you can be put into jail for 10 years. Mm. And so, therefore, I dare not say that I'm against the ideology of Pakistan, Mm -hmm. and yet, I don't know what the ideology of Pakistan is, Mm -hmm. because it's never been put down into any official document. It's not even there in the speeches of Mr. Jinnah, the founder of Pakistan. And yet, it is punishable. So why is this? That's because some 30 years down the line, in uh, 1979 or so, you had general takeover, mm-hmm. General Ziaul Haq, who then sought to redefine Pakistan, not as a Muslim state, but as an Islamic state. Mm-hmm. Now, the difference is a very profound one. A Muslim state is just a state where the majority of people are Muslim. Yes. Whereas an Islamic state is that where Islamic law is applied, uh, the Sharia, in mm. other words. Mm-hmm. And, he, and General Zia sought to make Pakistan an Islamic state and therefore said that the ideology of Pakistan is Islam. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the problem. One doesn't know what Islam is because it is interpretable in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. Secondly, one doesn't know who a Muslim is. Now, that might seem like a strange assertion to make. It does. But, well, this became a legal question. Mm -hmm. And this was, so this uh, very famous book called From Jinnah to Zia, written by Chief Just by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and he, his name is Justice Munir. Uh, he asked the religious scholars in court, as part of their testimony, to define who a Muslim is. Mm-hmm. What he got as a consequence was a spectrum of different, mutually incompatible definitions. Mm. And so even today, 
in the state of Pakistan, which calls itself an Islamic state, nevertheless, it does not have a definition of Muslim, and it does not have a definition of the ideology of Pakistan. But roughly speaking, and I say only roughly speaking, they say that the ideology of Pakistan is Islam. However, very important questions are left unanswered. For example, can a woman be the head of state mm -hmm. of Pakistan? And in fact, we did have Benazir Bhutto mm -hmm. as the prime minister, and she was the chief executive. And so, hey, does that mean Pakistan is not an Islamic state? Mm -hmm. Or to give you another example, interest, bank interest is forbidden in Islam. Mm -hmm. And yet our whole economy runs on interest. I mean, you can't simply do away with it. It's simply not possible. It's the entire economy is based upon bank interest. And I could go on. There are lots of questions like that. So when Zia-ul-Haq came into power in 1979 and his goal was to create an Islamic state, to make Pakistan an Islamic state, I guess you've just outlined to us the many contradictions that came up as a result of that idea of shaping Pakistan as an Islamic state, and that persists until today? Absolutely. We can't... Okay, let, let's take another example. It is forbidden to depict the human face. You can't paint it, you can't sketch it, you can't draw it, you can't take a photograph, you can't have it on television, you... You, can, you can't have it on video or movies, whatever. And yet, um, even religious scholars now would love to take their selfies yes. with their cell phones. <laughs> and television, well, everybody watches it. Of so course. Is that, per is that permitted in an Islamic state? And if it is an Islamic state, then I ought to have the right to own slaves. Mm. Slavery is not forbidden in the Quran. Mm -hmm. And so can I buy an American as a slave or a Canadian? Yes. Mm. What, do you, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> Again, you're, you're illustrating one of the contradictions that, that I guess, as we have this conversation about is Pakistan an Islamic state, regardless of what a previous politician or current politicians would like to see for Pakistan, the reality is that people, modern society, civil society in Pakistan has evolved to a point where there are many examples where Pakistan is perhaps observant of its uh, Muslim traditions, but many other traditions where it is not observant of those Muslim traditions. So therefore, can Pakistan truly be an Islamic state? I, I see the quandary, and it's it sounds as though that's an ongoing daily conversation that you probably deal with in Pakistan. Yeah, but I, you know, I, I'd like to say that this isn't unique to Pakistan. Yes. What, what about Israel? What about India, which is now seeking to become a Hindu state? Now, if that is so, that means that they must uh, rigorously abide by old traditions or what is there in the Torah. And so um, that makes for a pretty hellish existence for people who live over there and who think uh, in modern liberal terms. Mm-hmm. 
let's move on to the pri- the concept of a praetorian state. You talk about Pakistan as a praetorian state. Could you define what you mean by a praetor- praetorian state and why Pakistan is a praetorian state in your estimation? Yeah, first of all, that's a pretty difficult word, you know, praetorian or praetorium. What it means is that it's run by an army which is not really interested in fighting external wars, but rather is interested in governing the country and taking um, advantage of its military might. So why has the Pakistan army run Pakistan for the last, let's say, 70 plus years? The answer is that when Pakistan was formed, its leaders, its movers and shakers were people who uh, who were landlords, who were feudals, just a handful of businessmen, very few intellectuals. Or, I mean, I can only think of one or two of them. And so when Mr. Jinnah died. Now, Mr. Jinnah was a truly exceptional man in the sense that he was uh, educated. He was um, not susceptible to corrupt mm-hmm. to corruption. But when he died, there was a leadership vacuum. Yes, and so all the others were incapable of administering a, a country that was so large, and the only modern force that existed at that time was that which had been trained by the British to help the British run India. And that force which Pakistan inherited was, of course, became the Pakistan army. Mm-hmm. And in the absence of any civilian competency, civilian leadership, it naturally assumed greater and greater importance to the point that Today, I mean literally today, you see it very much in charge of the country. One of the other big questions that you pose in your book is identity. Who is a Pakistani? Am I a Pakistani? But so how do you respond to that? Because we've had 75 years now of Pakistani independence. We we know the flag, the money, the history. We see the country on a map. We see Pakistan playing a role in the regional security. So viewed from the outside as a, as a non-Pakistani, I can identify, you know, some of the symbols of a country. I can certainly identify the foreign policy of Pakistan, but you raise this question of identity. What is a Pakistani? So let's look at Pakistan, which is five different provinces. Well, the fifth one is in the making, I mean, therefore, at the moment. Apart from Punjab, and Punjab is the majority province, if you asked a person over there, who are you, mm-hmm. he would, he or she would say, I am Baloch, Sindhi, Gilgit, Baltistani, or Pathan. Mm-hmm. Whereas somebody from Punjab would say, I am Muslim and Pakistani. So the identification of Punjab with Pakistan is very close. Mm -hmm. That's not true. That's not true for all the other regions. And so in that sense, the sense of Pakistaniat, of being Pakistani, 
is yet to evolve, although 75 years have passed. People identify themselves with their sect. Mm-hmm. Are they Shia, Sunni? Are they Barelvi, Deobandi, etc.? So these are sects within Islam. They identify with that, with their region, with their caste as well. Now, Islam doesn't have caste, but um, you have communities that are very insular, so Jat or Arai or Bhutto or whatever, those would meet amongst themselves, they'd look at their self-interest, and of course people have multiple identities, so you can be this, that, and that. But I'd say that um, Pakistan is still searching for an identity. Well, 75 years in the greater scheme of a nation's existence is not that long, so you know, as compared with other countries, I think I think it's probably comparable. 75 years into independence, we're still probably at that formative stage of, of an identity, of a national identity. But let's move on to part five of the book, where, where you talk about looking ahead. We identify three critical issues which confront, do confront and may confront Pakistan. Number one, climate change. Number two, population explosion, and number three, and we haven't touched on this yet, the the fact that Pakistan is a nuclear power and India is a nuclear power. So those three issues, climate change, population explosion, and two nuclear-armed neighbors, give us your thoughts on those issues going forward and how they will impact the next 75 years not even 75, the next 25 to 30 years of Pakistan's history, of Pakistan's future, I should say. Climate change has already shown itself to be devastating. Last year, one-third of Pakistan was underwater because of the floods. Never before in history has it been like that. There are ways of mitigating it. The government is not acting fast enough. On the population explosion, I'm afraid... Pakistan is doing very poorly in comparison with Bangladesh, which has got a net growth of 1% or 1.1%. Pakistan has doubled that. Mm. And so by the time it is 100 years old, that is to say by 2147, it will have a population of 360 million, Mm. which... Which is incredibly large, and if this persists, if the same rate of growth persists, then after five doubling times, we will be equal to the entire population of the world, and that's completely unsustainable. Mm -hmm. And now here I hold the government of Pakistan entirely to blame, because contraceptives are not readily available, the Department of Population Planning was abolished, Mm. etc., On the issue of nuclear weapons, look, no war has happened since 1998 when India and Pakistan tested their nukes. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that all is well. Certainly, we've reached a certain, we've reached a level of nuclear accommodation, Mm -hmm. but there are accidents. There is always the possibility of madmen coming to power. And... um, It could be that, you know, it could even come about because of Indian hubris, because India is doing so much bigger, is India so much bigger that it may think that it can get away with a preemptive strike. Mm. And 
God knows what that would trigger. So all that, all those are possibilities, and we'll have to deal with them if we want to stay alive. As we come towards the close of our podcast today, Pervez, in chapter 16, you talk about civilian rule in the country, and you advocate for civilian rule of the country, and perhaps the the military taking a step back. Can we talk about that concept? You also talked about choosing trade over aid, redirect education, give women a voice. Can you talk about some of those concepts that you refer to in Chapter 16 in closing? First of all, we've got to give all Pakistanis equal rights, irrespective of their religion or their ethnic origin. That's number one. It's basic, it's fundamental. Then we've got to uncage the women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have them in cages, sometimes literally. We've got to get them out of the burqa. We've, I mean, if they want to be in burqa, fine, but not force it on them. Mm-hmm. We've got to assure that women get equal opportunity in employment, etc., then we've got to assure some degree of economic justice. We've got to get the military out of politics, stop it from running the country. I have such a long laundry list. <laughs> Where should I stop? <laughs> you know, Pervez, I was fascinated by your book. Before we went on the air, I mentioned to you that I thought that I was somewhat knowledgeable about Pakistan before I began reading your book. And only as I started reading your book, I realized there were huge gaps in my knowledge of the history of Pakistan and the traditions of Pakistan. So I want to thank you very much for making this book available, very readable, but making this available to us so that this country, which has been Pakistan, of course, has had close relations with the United States for nigh on 75 years, that your book is helping me, and I'm sure many other readers and listeners, is helping us have a better sense of the complexities of Pakistan politics, the economy, society. And again, I want to thank you very much for being with us today and sharing your unique perspective with us. Any closing thoughts for our listeners? I think you asked me just the right questions, and thank you for inviting me. Well, my pleasure. And Pervez, where can our listeners buy a copy of the book? Oh, just go to Google and uh, put in the name of the book and it'll tell you where to buy. Again, the title of the book is Pakistan, Origins, Identity and Future. And Pervez, how can our listeners follow you? Do you have a Twitter handle, a website, any way for listeners to follow up? Ah, so I have no social media presence. I do not have a Facebook page. I do not have Twitter, and I do not even have a smartphone. I I founded the black hole in in Islamabad, mm-hmm. and just put that into your Google bar, theblackhole.pk, and you'll see what I'm up to over there. I also have a YouTube channel, but you know most of that is is in Urdu. And your listeners would be unlikely to follow that. I do occasionally do programs in English, but that's very rare. So theblackhole.pk. That's so right. so for any listener who wants to follow up on your both on the book and your other your other books, go to theblackhole.pk and there we'll be able to connect with uh, with you and your writings. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, Again, Pervez, thanks so much for joining us. 
And for our listeners, today's episode is number 411. The San Francisco Experience is featured on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, 19 platforms in total with listeners in 65 countries. This has been the San Francisco Experience with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco. And again, we want to thank our guest today, Professor Pervez Hoodboy, for joining us to discuss this seminal book. Mm-hmm.